Welcome to the Brian Thomas Crop Podcast. My name is Brian Thomas Crop, and I believe that stories have a tremendous power for good. So I write them and I enjoy sharing them with you. If you are new to the podcast, welcome. And what happens here is in just a little bit, I'm gonna read a chapter from uh, my first novel that I wrote called Showdown in the Yukon. And then on the other side of that chapter, go into a little bit of some behind the scenes on the making of that chapter. So um, uh, maybe some Easter eggs, some ways that I wove in part of my past into uh, the story or in other ways, how you make a, a work of fiction that that makes sense. So uh, we are fairly deep into uh, the the story of Shodan in the Yukon. I would encourage you to swing back uh, several episodes back to when we started this, uh, be about 20 Two cha uh, 22 weeks back, 22 episodes ago. Um, but just to catch you up briefly, there is a young man named Monterey, that's his nickname, Jack Danvers, and uh, he is an ex-pickpocket, and he used to work with a guy named Max Sutherland, who he has gone, both of them have gone straight, but in different um, uh, locations, and now they've met up again. Mac has now taken on this uh, widow and her daughter. Uh, her, the, their last name is Finch, and they have lost a gold claim up in the Yukon area of northern Canada, and they've they have hired Mac, and Mac has hired Monterey to help them get. Uh, their their rights back to the gold that is coming out of uh, the, the, that land. Uh, the guy who stole it, his name is Cornelius Brown, and they've had quite the adventure trying to get up to the Yukon where this mine is. They've uh, encountered bandits, they've encountered shipwrecks, they've encountered uh, pirates, they've been chased up uh, a tree and almost caught on fire. They've been rescued multiple times and uh, currently they have run into a strange forest hermit named Pete and uh, told their tale of woe to Pete. Pete has now uh, left um, mysteriously and they're trying to figure out what to do. They can't leave. Our band of heroes can't leave because there's this giant bear guarding the door that belongs to Pete. So they're kind of stuck there. So uh, when this uh, chapter begins, that's where we are. And I'm glad that you are all caught up and ready to go. And we will get to chapter 22 uh, as soon as we hear from this week's sponsors. This episode is also sponsored by the Casey Jackson in South Acres series. I am proud to announce that the final book, Carry That Weight, is out in Amazon stores. You can get that in a physical book or in an ebook for your Kindle. Uh, this is uh, a story that has taken about a year to get released. It's a four-part story, and all four parts are out, so you can have the whole series. Uh, go check out the link in the show notes and grab your own copy of Carry That Weight, or if you haven't uh, looked at the whole series, you can grab the whole series uh, there as well. And now, here's our chapter. Chapter 22. For three days, the four of them were more or less prisoners in Pete's place. More than once, they had all decided to leave, but they never figured out how to deal with Clara. Bears have a great sense of smell, so no length of distraction would work long enough for them to escape. If they killed the bear, they did not want Pete hunting them down. 
No one wanted to get close enough to tie the poor girl up. Eventually, they contented themselves with their fate and passed their time in Pete's house. "'What if our dear friend Pete has gotten himself killed?' asked Mrs. Finch. "'What are we to do then? Wait here till Judgment Day? Clara is never going to let us go free.' "'Let's give him till sunup,' Max said. "'There's plenty of food here for us, dried and preserved as it is, and I'm sure Pete knows his way in the woods.' I don't know what he went out to find, but I'm curious enough to wait. The first snow is now three days closer, moaned Lucy, and we don't have an idea how much farther we have before we get to our homestead. Just then, they heard a rustling in the trees. Mac put his finger to his lips and motioned for the women to get as far away from the door and window as possible. He motioned Monterey to guard the window, and he positioned himself at the entrance. Monterey noticed Mac had his pistol drawn. The shack would be a terrible place to get into a gunfight, Monterey thought as he spied out of the window to see what or who approached. He was unable to see Clara, who was already up on all four feet, casually standing at attention like a hefty and dutiful dog. Monterey saw a dark shape moving in the nearby brush. Clara stood on her hind legs and gave out a mighty call just as Pete's face came into view. It's him, Monterey whispered. He noticed the news did not ease the women, but Mac put his gun back in its holster. A moment later, Pete came in the front door and looked at everyone in the room. His face was no more or less careworn than when he left. All right, he said and put his belongings in a corner. You made your case. I checked it out. The whole thing seemed too fantastical, if not downright foolish to me. But when I saw your map, it got me thinking, maybe you really did have a way to beat Brown at his own corrupt game. So I went to see if you had been lying about any other part of your story. If I had seen you false about even the slightest detail, I was prepared to run you off as cheats and scoundrels. I went all the way back to the coast. Sure enough, I found the wreckage of a mighty ship. That whole area at the edge of the mountains is known for pirate lairs. Lots of caves and canyons to hide their loot. I can only assume the tunnels you describe are also there since I did not see them for myself. It would have done no one any good if I got captured by one of those criminals. Then I spoke with Mungo and his people. The fact he didn't speak very highly of you, sir, he said looking at Mac out of the corner of his eye, was even more credibility to your story. There's no way an enemy will prove your story right if it ain't. The short of it is, if you are prepared to go all the way up there and bring justice on Cornelius Brown, I am prepared to help you any way I can. I'd come with you, but I think my presence would only raise his suspicions unnecessarily. For this to work, he can't see me coming within a hundred miles. Pete paused and looked gravely at his guests. Then he suddenly slapped his hands together and let out a jolly, Huh! and said, So what do you say we get to work? The rest of that day was spent packing and planning for a shortcut through the Lenkua forest. Pete showed Monterey how to weave thin strips of bark into baskets and nets. Once loaded with goods, he was surprised how strong yet light the packs were. Monterey thought he wished he'd known these things when he left Good and Gulch. Mrs. Finch and Lucy packed blankets and animal hides and wrapped up dried berries and meat in large leather pouches. As for Mac, he and Pete went over the routine again and again till Mac felt he'd been through the forest already. When dinner was over, Pete looked at each one of them and said, The Linkua is a fickle woman. No one goes in through there except the bravest and most experienced of wilderness men. While there are many paths inside, there is only one that leads clean through it. Keep the Quill River on your right, and you should make it to Penny Canyon in a day or two. To go around the forest would put you weeks out of your way, and who knows if you would survive. But I warn you, 
Delancua has held on to as many men as she has let go. The brush is thick, and there will be times she'll think it is night when it is bright as the noonday on the outside. She has many tricks and games to play. Distraction is her favorite pastime. Don't you listen to her. If you get off the good path for even a moment, you will be trapped in the Lanuka for days or weeks or longer. In the morning, each person put on their pack and said their goodbyes to Pete. He handed each of them a small knife and said, For when you need it. Notice, I don't say if. She will do her best to trap you. You must be more clever than her. Your guns will be of no use in there, but with a knife you stand a chance of fending off her schemes. Then he wished them well and regretted again not being able to see the look on Mr. Brown's face when he met his downfall. It was with bittersweet hearts the four travelers started this new leg of their journey, well-fed and well-rested. Monterey was glad to be finally moving forward again, a thought that even surprised him. They walked mostly in silence, which gave Monterey plenty of time to think what he might experience if he came face to face with Mr. Brown. What would he say? Would he have to fight him? He did not know how he would do under the pressure of reality. Could he, if the situation forced itself, kill him? The weight of the actual encounter began to grow heavier and heavier on his shoulders. There was a certain chill in the air that morning Mrs. Finch said was a warning the snow was not too far off. The days were shorter and shorter, and the heat from the sun less and less, so they did what they could to travel fast and rest as quickly as possible. From time to time, Monterey felt something move out of the corner of his eye. He was never sure if or what he saw, but he felt uneasy all the same. Once, he almost saw it through the wall of trees, but when he stared longer, he saw that it had only been his imagination. They stopped and ate lunch at the edge of the Lincua forest. Giant pine trees made an ominous wall. Monterey could see a shallow river off to the east and guessed it to be the quill. As they ate, Monterey whispered, Out of curiosity, because I want to make sure I'm in my right mind, but did anyone else think someone followed us here? I kept noticing something, but I could never tell what. You know how the mind can play tricks. For a while, no one said anything. Then Lucy said, I, I didn't want to say anything because I thought I was just scared. I saw it too, said Mac. If my guess is accurate, it was Clara. I think Pete had her accompany us to ensure we arrived at the forest door without meeting any other misadventures. Monterey nodded inside his relief. At least he wasn't losing his mind, though he found it odd how relieved he felt knowing Clara was watching them. I suspect she'll head back home once we enter the forest proper, said Mac, but it was sure nice to have the company. The rest of the group agreed. Once the time for resting was over, they hitched on their packs, made sure they could see the river on their right, and began to walk into the forest. Okay, now that we are left at the edge of a large, dark forest, and I apologize for having to uh, say that very slowly. There's this, um, this is a tangent and I apologize, but there's a story that my uncle uh, showed me years and years ago where a guy back in World War II, when a lot of goods were being rationed in the United States, um, he developed a idea like, what if we rationed words and you could only say certain words and it's not like a Orwellian kind of, you can only say certain things. There's like, we, for the time being, we were rationing out some words. And so he wrote this story on the chalkboard and I think he gave his students some kind of credit if they figured out what it was, but it was all these random words seemingly, but when you say it out loud, it turns in to um, Little Red Riding Hood. 
you could look it up. It's called uh, ladle, like you soup, uh, grab soup out of a pot, ladle, rat, like a large rodent, uh, hut, like pizza. Um, so ladle, rat, rotten hut, sorry, I forgot the rotten part, instead of Little Red Riding Hood, and it's hilarious. But at some point uh, before she actually like, leaves grandma and is on her way, or she leaves her house to go to grandma and she ends up at the edge of a lodge dock florist. And I've done that so much that saying large dark forest is just weird for me to say. Anyway, on to more relevant things. Um, being there at the end edge of, of that forest, um, it is time for a history lesson. Uh, when I was developing the story, the, the big hook for me was um, I knew that this uh, strange pearl was gonna factor in. I knew that I wanted I don't know why, but I want somebody by the name of Monterey Jack to be like this really cool uh, cowboy type person. Um, but that put it in a certain time period. And uh, to have a grand, <clears throat> excuse me, if, if to have this grand adventure, I needed to not just be local. And uh, I, so I didn't want it to be the San Francisco uh, gold rush of 1849 for, uh, timing of other future books and things and how all that kind of plays out. I didn't want it to be that old. So I was looking around and uh, I thought, well, there's that. I remember this Yosemite Sam cartoon when I was a kid where he's up in the Klondike and uh, doing something up there. And there's the Charlie Chaplin movie where they're up there. I'm like, what? All I know about Klondike is that it's a chocolate covered uh, bar of awesomeness. So, um, I looked into it and uh, there up in the uh, Yukon, there is an area called the Klondike and that is where uh, there was an Alaskan gold rush in 1896. Um, actually, it was discovered there on my birthday in 1896, had I been that old. But anyway, um, um, I you know, if you've listened to this show enough, you know, I don't do a ton of research. So <clears throat> I went to, you know, Wikipedia and found out <clears throat> all that I thought I could know about uh, the Klondike Gold Rush. And I'm sure there's even more than that, but it is in the Yukon area. And this whole time I thought it was in Alaska and find out, no, it was in Canada. So uh, I, it, I think it changed the title of the book. So I was going to put Alaskan in there somewhere, but, and I was going to actually uh, title the book Yukon Gold until I realized that A, that's the name of a potato. And I couldn't have a character named after a cheese and then a title of a, of a potato too. Plus it is also a television show. I don't think I, that would have been a problem copyright wise, but uh, there was a sort of like a gold mining show, um, reality show called Yukon Gold that I guess is quite popular up in Canada. So I went with uh, Shodan in the Yukon because that seemed to have a little more action in it. But interesting things, um, uh, as you know, Gooden Gulch doesn't exist. And a lot of the locations don't exist in reality. And we're about to hit an area that does exist. The Klondike exists, the Yukon exists. So what do I do uh, with this forest? And uh, there is a forest in the, in the Yukon and a river. And um, the actual forest is the Kluane, and there's a national park and reserve there. Um, and it has uh, this little town called 
uh, Quill Creek is uh, over there. And so, uh, but it's the Kluane River. And I don't know that I'm pronouncing that correctly. I think it's Kluane. If not, it's the Kluane. And I, that just sounds unromantic. So all I did was I rearranged the letters of Kluane to make Linkua. And then instead of calling it the Linkua River, I just made it the Quill River. So um, it is sort of a made up place, but it's you could find that kind of thing on the map. So um, ways to fictionalize reality. That's what we've learned today. And um, it is a large area, um, but the one thing I like about the forest in this story, and we'll, we'll come to this in the next chapter or two, is there's a Broadway musical called Into the Woods where it takes a bunch of the grim fairy tales where people leave the safety of their house, Red Riding Hood being one of them, and they end up going into a forest and then things happen that uh, they have to uh, deal with in order to uh, come out to the other side. And I don't think the the Grimm brothers were necessarily dealing so much with character transformation, but um, you, it is definitely you start in a in an ordinary world and you enter this land of mystery which is the forest and then you have all these obstacles and all these challenges to kind of test your metal and then what are you going to do so uh, that's what's about to happen here they're they've been being they are being tested throughout this whole story but this is certainly a very mysterious place um, uh, that is very dark and uh, foreboding and Pete has certainly given us a lot of warning about that the other thing I really liked in re-listening to this chapter was, at least for me, the first. This was the first time where, in in having the feelings of the characters, like, oh, now this is for real. We've actually got not just a buddy like back um, at that uh, seaside town with Thomas, where he was being an advocate for everybody. And this is a stranger who's advocating. No, Cornelius Brown is a bad guy, and I, if I go, it's going to be bad for you. So I'm going to help you get there. But this guy needs to be like this is this is for real. Um, I, you know, once we get to the other side of this forest, it's kind of game on. So if we can just get past this barrier, uh, we'll be doing well, and uh, we will find out whether or not that happens. It does uh, in future weeks. So I hope that you have enjoyed this episode and uh, let somebody know that this show is out there. I think they will enjoy it too. And if you have not yet signed up for my readers group, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, swing over to briantomascrop.com and when you join the group, I will send you a whole starter library of uh, books that I have written. Some have been on this podcast. Some of them haven't, including you get the first full book of uh, Casey Jackson in Southacre, uh, a book called In Spite of All the Danger. So uh, swing over to uh, briantomascrop.com, sign up for the reader group, and uh, I will send you that starter library. Uh, until we meet again next time, I hope you have a great week.